The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Why the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. It's because, and you, the word gospel means news, good news. The gospel isn't, this is how you should live. And God's, you know, 10 commandments, 12 commandments, 100 commandments, 600 commandments. No, it's, it's good news. It's what God has done in Christ Jesus. And right in the heart of the gospel, as you heard this morning, is the resurrection of Christ. We sing a song here called, O Glorious Day. I think the chorus goes something like this. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to quote it. Um, Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified. Now, justification is not a word we use a lot outside of uh, talking about the Bible and Christianity, but the justification means that the judge has declared you to be perfectly righteous in his eyes. This is what happened because Jesus was raised from the dead. Every person who comes to Christ in faith is declared absolutely righteous in the eyes of God. In other words, it's acceptance by God. And then the last line is, someday he's coming, O glorious day. The gospel includes those facts, just as you heard in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the scriptures he's talking about is the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah tells us that that the Messiah was going to die for our sins. And so Paul says he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, which proved that he was dead. And he was raised according to the scriptures. The Bible in the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins, but he would be raised from the dead. And then Paul says, and he was seen. And he gives us a whole list of names of people who saw him, including a group that was about 500 people saw him at one time. But I want, to, I want to show you in the book of Romans what is so important about the resurrection. Now, I heard somebody say, I read this, a, a, a theologian who said, it's not important whether Jesus was really raised. What's important is that you believe it. That's a lie. God doesn't want you to believe a lie. He wants you to believe the truth. And so if Christ is not risen, as Paul said, we are of all men most miserable. If Christ is not risen, then we don't have a gospel that we can believe. So we believe that, the, that Christ was actually raised from the dead and that the, the, the resurrection of Christ is vital for the gospel. And, and this is why. There's, there's five reasons. You can see them there in that handout. Uh, it's because the gospel of God proclaims a Savior who is the Son of God, and the resurrection is what clearly marked him out as the Son of God. The gospel of God proclaims a justification that is certain. That is, that you can be made right with God. Right with God. In a perfect relationship with God because of Christ's resurrection. It also, the gospel of God also proclaims a high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. And the gospel proclaims a faith that saves. And that's all, those things are based on the resurrection. And finally, the gospel proclaims a Lord who has all authority in heaven and upon earth. 
And that's based upon the gospel, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, notice the first thing. He, the gospel of God proclaims a Savior who is the Son of God. Let me read the passage to you. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Five verses. Paul says, he introduces the book of Romans this way. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is in the Old Testament. God promised this through the prophets that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, that was Mary, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship, Paul says, to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake. What he was saying there was, it was because of the resurrection that Christ sent me out to the Gentiles to take the gospel. Paul was absolutely convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, as you know, he actually was, came face to face with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, where he was going to arrest Christians and throw them in jail because he didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. But when he met Christ on the road, and when Christ spoke to him, and when Christ appeared to him, he became convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And he preached that message to the nations. The message of Christianity is called gospel. It's called good news. It's good news. It's good news that Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sins. Paul elsewhere spends a lot of time explaining why it is that we are under sin and we need saving. A savior with good intentions can't accomplish anything if he doesn't have the power to do it. In fact, Jesus talked about this. He said, if you, somebody broke into your house and they captured your family and were holding them captive, the first thing that you would have to be able to do is to take that strong man captive in order to set your family free. What Jesus did, he came into the world because he is the son of God. He was able to do what needed to be done in order for us to be set free from our sin. He came into the world, took upon our nature so that he could take our place before an almighty God, a righteous God. So this is how we know that Jesus Christ has the power to save us from sin. Here in Romans chapter 1, the first four verses tells us he's the Son of God. In fact, it says he was marked out as the Son of God. The word declared means, it's a a cardiographer's language. It's a word that means to draw a map and to mark out with great precision the boundaries of a land. And what he says is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it clearly marked him out to be son of God. You think about those men who were totally blown away by the fact that Jesus was crucified. There's There's an account in the book of Luke of two disciples of Jesus after the crucifixion. They had been in high hopes that Jesus was the Messiah, but he got crucified and he was laid in a tomb. And they didn't know he had been raised from the dead. And so they're on a walk, about a seven-mile walk. And as they go along, here comes Jesus. And Jesus falls in and starts walking alongside of them, which is what would happen in that part of the world at this time in history. 
everybody walked everywhere they went. So if you found somebody to walk with, somebody's come along the same path as you, you gladly fell in with them. And so Jesus walks alongside of them. And they're talking about how disappointed they are because they thought that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And yet he was crucified. And so their hopes were dashed. So here it is. There's a resurrected Christ walking right there in their group. And they had no realization that he had been raised from the dead. And so Jesus finally asked them, what are you talking about anyway? Who is this you're talking about? And they said, well, you're the only, you're the only man in, the, in Judea that doesn't know about, the, about this crucifixion of Jesus, who we thought was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus walks along with them, and he begins to tell them what the Bible had said about him. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And he teaches them. How would you like this? A seven-mile walk. How long does it take for you to walk seven miles? A little while, about as long as a a three-unit college class, right? So you're walking along, and Jesus is teaching them about the Messiah. How would you like to be taught about the Messiah by the Messiah? And so he teaches them. And when they get to their destination, their hearts are opened up and they realize this is Jesus who was crucified and he's been raised from the dead. Well, actually what happened was they invite him into the house. He goes into the house and he reclines there at table with them and he broke the bread, which was the the privilege of a guest. So as a guest, they're reclining at table and he breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread, it would make a noise because it was like a flatbread. He breaks the bread, and when they did, their eyes were open, and they saw who he was, and they recognized that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Jesus showed himself, according to Peter, to a group of eyewitnesses that God wanted them to see him so they could report it so that they could record it. And that's what we have in the New Testament Gospels. We have eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the important thing about it, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, the first thing is, is that this, this reveals him to be, it declares him to be, Son of God. Now, being a Son of God, the Son of God means that you've lived for eternity. He's lived for eternity. Well, how can the eternal Son of God come into this world and become a human being? Well, he did it through the virgin birth, through this supernatural plan of God. And he lived among them. And he looked like an ordinary guy. After all, he was a carpenter. He had calluses on his hands. He got dirty when he worked. You know, that is, he probably smelled like a carpenter. (laughs) I was looking at our carpenter. But Jesus was the eternal Son of God. And he came and took on our humanity in humility so that he could die for us and provide salvation. So the first reason the resurrection is so important is so that we understand that we have a Savior who is the Son of God. And the Son of God can save people. The second reason we're told in the book of Romans for the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, is that it provides, because of the resurrection, it provides a justification that's certain. Now, I understand that we don't traffic typically outside the church with this word justification, but justification is a glorious word and has the idea of being accepted. 
that every, every barrier between you and that other person has been totally removed. And God has declared us righteous. Every believer who comes to Christ in faith is declared righteous by the one lawgiver and judge. And so Paul says in, in Romans 4.25, he who was delivered over because of our just transgressions, and the word transgressions means everything that you've ever done in your life that failed to meet up to the obligation you have before God. The way that's summarized in the Bible is God says to you that you have a responsibility. These are the words of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's our responsibility. When Jesus died for our transgressions, our trespasses, all those times that we have failed to meet up to that obligation. When we haven't loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we've loved ourselves instead. And so he died in order that those trespasses or transgressions would be forgiven. It says he was raised because of our justification. In other words, the, the resurrection of Christ was this great declaration by God that what Jesus did on the cross paid for our sins. Paid in full. Have you ever paid a bill and it didn't get recorded right and they tried to charge you that amount again? Yes, you have, I'm sure. Almost all of us have had this happen where we, we got caught in this situation where we pay a, a debt we have, but it didn't get recorded and so they come after you a second time. Well, at least we've had the, ex the experience where we thought we paid it, and we get another bill, and we think, what's going on here? Well, what Jesus did at the, on the cross was he paid the debt that we had to God. He paid it in full. And the receipt is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was God saying, I have accepted the work of my son on the behalf of sinners, and every sinner who puts their faith in Jesus has been forgiven and justified, declared righteous by God. You take away the resurrection, and you have to take away the basis of our acceptance with God. We're still in our sins, as Paul put it. We're still alienated from God if Christ is not raised from the dead. The third reason the book of Romans mentions is found in chapter 6, and also in chapter 5, but let me just read these two, three verses to you, actually, two from Romans, one from Hebrews. Listen to what it says. We have a Savior who always lives to make intercession for us. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. I need to explain something. It's real simple. But that When Jesus died, we know that he died spiritually on the cross. That is, he was separated from God, because you remember what he said on the cross. The very first thing he says from the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he was in our place and he was experiencing spiritual death, a separation from God. But Peter says the moment that he was made alive spiritually and his relationship was restored to the Father on the cross, at that moment he died physically. So Jesus died both spiritually and physically for us. Why? Because that's the penalty of sin. It's death. It's spiritual death, separation from God, and it's physical death, the separation of your inner man from your outer man. And Jesus Christ paid for those sins by dying for us on the cross. 
And so this is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. He says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He has no obligation to die again because he's died for our sins. He was obligated to die because God gave him this assignment. The Father gave him the assignment to come into the world and stand in the place with sinners and die on a cross. And he did that. But now death can no longer be master over him. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled to God through the death of his son, we've been reconciled by his life. We shall be saved by his life. What does that mean? It means that you're being saved every day, believer, by the Son of God who is alive and who intercedes for you. In fact, listen to this, this is Hebrews 7.25. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me tell you, this gospel is so amazing. It even includes the fact that Jesus is continually alive now that he's been raised from the dead. He will never die again. And because of this, he is always interceding for us. You know, I mentioned a while ago, we've been praying for these two brothers, uh, Theo and Ami in, in New Delhi. But every time I go to the Father and mention their name, I know that Jesus has already done it. I just join him in the prayer because he ever lives to intercede for us. This is one of the most glorious truths for believers is that we have somebody in the very presence of the Father who continually pleads our case. Listen to this. In 1 John chapter 1, Paul, I mean John, rather, who wrote 1 John, John is explaining how to have a life of fellowship with God through Christ. And then he says, in chapter 2, he says this, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. So you don't, you don't commit any acts of rebellion against God. But then he says, but... If anyone does sin, that's pretty likely, isn't it? We have discovered that we aren't sinless. We've discovered that we've been accepted by God based upon the perfection of Christ, and we still are imperfect and still prone to sin. And so he says, if anyone does sin, we have presently an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now what that means is when you sin... Believer, when you commit an act of sin, that is an act of disobedience to God. At that moment, while you're doing the sinning, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he's the propitiation for our sins. Isn't that amazing? You see, the resurrection tells us not only did he save us in the past by forgiving us our sins, but he's saving us every day because he is alive and he is with the Father and he is interceding for us. I know this is difficult to believe, but it's true. He knows your name, and he utters your name to the Father. He intercedes for you, and that's because of the resurrection. We have a living Savior. The Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, that is God and people. And then he says this, a man. Who is the mediator? A man, Christ Jesus. See, he still has this human nature of his. He's in a body, a physical resurrection body in the very presence of God, and he intercedes for you. He represents you there, and he prays for you. 
The wonderful thing about Jesus praying for you that's so much better than me praying for you is he actually knows your heart. I'm easily deceived. But he knows your heart. And so when he intercedes for you, he knows exactly what you need. And you know why that's true? It's because he's been raised from the dead. And then in chapter 10, Paul says that the resurrection is significant because the gospel, which includes the resurrection, the proclamation of his resurrection, declares a faith that saves. A faith that saves. Let me explain something. Faith doesn't mean believing something that's not true. That's not faith. That's stupidity or deception. What faith is in the Bible is believing that God speaks truth and that what he has declared is true. And so we hear what he says and we believe it and that's faith. Now the Bible also tells us that faith divorced from behavior isn't, belief divorced from behavior isn't biblical faith. In other words, when I have true faith, it's because the Spirit's done something in my heart. My eyes have been opened to the glory of the gospel. And I see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I see the glory of Christ in this revelation of him. So the faith that saves is the faith that believes the truth that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Listen to this. This is Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. Now, this confession is talking about you expressing to him that he is Lord. Have you noticed that pattern in your life, Christian? When you pray, you, you address the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. You know he's Lord, and you express it from your heart. Now, the unbeliever doesn't believe he's Lord because their eyes have not yet been opened. But God's done something in your life. Every one of you who are believers, God the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this is what Paul says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, salvation, God has reconciled us just because we believed in Christ. But the word salvation, which describes the entire process, starting with the first time you believed until you enter into the presence of God and through all eternity, the word salvation means to make whole and complete, to deliver you completely. I'm sure most of you recognize that we're not yet what we ought to be, right? Right? You, you recognize that things haven't been, it's kind of like 1 John chapter 3. What foreign kind of love is this that we should be called the children of God? And we are, but it hasn't appeared what we shall be. But when we see him, we'll be like him. We'll, we'll be just like him because we'll see him as he is. In other words, we're in a process. That's why we ought to show a little kindness to each other that we really are in process. No one has arrived yet. And the person who, ha- who says he's arrived is really in bad shape. And so is their spouse. It's a horrible thing to live with a perfect human being. That is somebody who thinks they are, and they still don't need Christ who is saving them every day. But that's exactly what he's doing.
The gospel which we preach is a word of faith. By that, what we mean by that is it's a message that has to be believed. The message that has to be believed is that Jesus Christ came into the world, took your place, suffered the penalty for your sins, was buried and resurrected, and God promises that if you come to him in faith, he will save you. He will not only forgive your sins, he'll make you whole, and he'll restore your relationship with the one who created you for relationship with him. That's why you were made. I've been married for 54 years. My wife has too. And, uh, and I, I almost, it's, we've been together for so long, I actually believe she was made for me. I, somebody told me about the doctrine of Adam's rib. <laughs> that's the doctrine that some teach that there's a right woman for every man. I don't know if that's true, but I know I got mine. See, and when it comes to my relationship with Christ, I feel the same way. He's the perfect Savior. There's nobody else who could save me because I'm so much worse than you could imagine. The only one who could possibly save me is the Jesus who's revealed in this book who came, took on my very image as a human being in a fallen world and went to the cross and stood in my place and took the judgment that was due me. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I've been a follower of Jesus even longer than I've been married. And uh, I can tell you, he's the perfect Savior. He is the perfect Savior. He's a Savior that can give you life. I'm talking about real life. What I mean by life is a relationship with God. That's called eternal life. That's what Jesus says it was. It is eternal life, it is the fact that we know God and we know Jesus Christ. There's nothing like this. There isn't anything like it. And this last thing is that we preach a gospel that includes the resurrection because the gospel proclaims a Lord who has all authority. A Lord who has all authority. Do you have any friends in high places? You remember that song, I forget the guy's name, the country singer who sang that song, I have friends in low places. That's the way most of us are, right? We've got lots of friends who have no authority whatsoever, no power to get anything accomplished. You know, we've had trouble with our, in our building project with some, in a relationship with the county. And we've never had anybody represent us that had an inside track to the county and could get anything done that we needed done. But we do have one who has all authority in heaven and upon earth, and he is our savior. He's not our building a superintendent. He is our savior. And he's perfect. And he has all authority in heaven and upon earth. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the one we call Lord has no authority at all. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, which testified that he is the Son of God, just as he said, if he wasn't raised from the dead, then we don't have a Savior who has the authority to save us. We are all men most miserable, as Paul says in, Romans, in 1 Corinthians 15. But we do have a Savior who is alive. And you can, you can actually put all your weight upon him. You can believe upon him for life, for salvation, for eternity. 
Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and upon earth. All authority in heaven and upon earth. And so when we come to him in prayer, we're coming to one who can answer prayer. It's a wonderful thing to be agents of Jesus Christ in this world, which we all are as believers. We are ambassadors of Christ. And we are called to come before him, the one who has all authority. I mean, think of this. You talk to somebody, they're in a big mess, and you say to them, well, let me talk to, let me talk to somebody I know that has all authority in heaven and upon earth. Well, they would think you were a little bit nuts, but it's true. You really do. You have access to the one who has all authority. Now, he's perfectly righteous, so he won't always do what you want him to do because sometimes what you're asking him isn't righteous or it isn't a part of his good plan and purpose for our lives. So it's not like we have carte blanche. I can ask anything that kind of flies into my head, but I can ask him based upon his revealed will and based upon his character because he was raised from the dead and therefore he has all authority in heaven and upon earth. That's the Savior we serve. That's the gospel we preach. The gospel we preach is this good news that he is the lion and the lamb of God. He's the lamb of God because he died for you. He's the lion of God because he is the one who has all power and authority. Let me read you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote, He is the lamb and the lion of God. Approach him as the lamb of God and he will become a lion for you defending you. But reject him as the Lamb of God, and he will become a lion against you. If you're here, and you've heard the gospel before, and you just reject it out of hand, all I want to do is say to you, it's a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to do. God sent his Son into the world to die for you, to purchase you, to bring you into relationship with himself, because that's what he created you for. And maybe you had that inkling at different times. You recognize that you were made for something far above your wildest dreams. He made you for a relationship with him. And the, the sin that, the, the one sin that cannot be forgiven is rejection of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we believe that real love the love of God, sometimes you're pictured like this. The love of God is he loves you just as you are, and he always will love you just as you are. That's a Rogerian idea. Unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. Now let me tell you something. The gospel is better than that. What the gospel says, he loves you just like he loves his son when you put faith in him. He loves you just like he loves his son, and you are as acceptable to him because, you're, because of his son when you, when you believe on his son. So I want to tell you today, you can come to have a relationship with him today if you don't have one already by simply believing his testimony about his son. That's what 1 John 5 says. Your responsibility in order to have a relationship with God is you have to believe God's word. You have to believe his testimony about his son. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus testified in a very public way about his son. They heard his voice when he was baptized, and the disciples heard his voice on the Mount of Transfiguration. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
listen to him. First John 5 says, this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the life, whoever has the Son, I mean, has the life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have the life. So this one that we've been talking about, who was raised from the dead, is the one in whom you can have eternal life. Not just live forever. I'm telling you, that's not... I was talking to a guy the other day who said he didn't want to have a perfect diet because he hated to get old, and I think like me is what he was talking about. I don't want to get old and, and you know, become unhealthy, get dementia or something. I'd rather eat like I want to and die young. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the words of a young foolish man. God wants to save you for eternity. He wants to give you eternal life that's not limited to this world, but is a part of an eternal relationship with the living God. And it's such a good gift that we can't even measure it. It's far beyond anything we could imagine or think of. So let me pray for you in closing. Our Father, we bow our hearts now. We thank you that we have this free access to the throne room of God. And you've told us we can come to you and we have freedom of speech and free access and we can bear our hearts to you. I thank you that we can ask you to work and to move. We prayed for these brothers I mentioned before. Uh, who desperately need you to act for them. And I want to ask you today for those who are here, if, if there's anyone here who has not yet come to be a recipient of the eternal life that you give to everyone who believes in your Son, I pray that you would open their eyes to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would open their eyes to the fact that we have a risen Savior who's able to save, and that they would turn to him today. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Thank you, Father, for such a Savior. We give you thanks. We are full of gratitude towards you for giving us a Savior like this, a Savior who is willing to lay down his life for us, and yet a Savior who has been raised from the dead and who will live for all eternity as our Savior. How we thank you for him. We ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.